We are in the second Sunday of a three-part series on our vision statement, which we can summarize in three words, glorify, nurture, proclaim, glorify, nurture, proclaim, and there'll be a congregational meeting next Sunday to review the statement in depth. Last week, we looked at glorify, and that was how that is worked out in our covenant renewal worship service. Today, we move to the second heading of the vision, nurture, nurture. Our text is going to be the the reading from Ephesians 4, 7 through 16, though I will allude to the other text toward the end. So we're going to make two points here. They're in the back inside page of your bulletin, ministry and maturity. First, then ministry. So it's Ephesians 4. Paul begins in verse 7 by saying that to each of us, grace has been given. And this gifting or grace comes, we see at the end of verse 7, as Christ apportioned it, as he allots it. So, the ascended Jesus, by means of the Spirit, has allotted or he's measured out grace, gifts. And he's done this for every member of the body. The Spirit is democratic. He is given to all. This is a remarkable thing. In the history of the ancient world, each one, male and female, young or old, regardless of race or class or origin, receives the gift of the Spirit. This is evident, for example, in that great Pentecost sermon that Peter gives when the Spirit is poured out. In these last days, the Spirit will be poured out on young men and old men and men and women and male and females. Slave and free. So that means everyone sitting in here today, whether you're a child or an adult, whether you're male or female, you have received grace from the exalted Lord, and everyone sitting in here today is called to deploy that grace for the nurture of the church. That's the gist of the whole sermon right there. That's everything. I'll say it again. Each one, male or female, young or old, sitting here today, has received grace from the exalted Lord. And that means everyone is called to deploy that grace for the nurture of the church. Every time we receive a new member here, right? Some of this is implied in those vows. Will you support the church and its work? to the best of your ability. That's not simply will you write a check. That's will you use your gifts to nourish the church. Do you promise to study to seek the church's peace and its purity? These membership vows entail recognizing and acknowledging and using your grace and gifts. You then, you, you're critical to the living flourishing unity of this community. There are no islands in the Christian faith, right? There's no rugged American individualism. 
There's just weak, broken people who need each other. Right? There's a gifted body. There's a spirit-endowed people. And these gifts given to us are the bounty of the ascended Lord. Right? He ascends victorious, the text says, and he gives gifts to men. The ascended Jesus receives the fullness of the Spirit, then he pours that fullness out freely on his body. And so this text in Ephesians 4, it roots all ministry. All ministry, meaning whether it's public or private, whether it's mundane or miraculous, it roots all ministry in the grace of these gifts from the ascended one. And so... In the text, in verse 11, Paul sort of narrows the focus from each one of us. He's going to get back to that. But he narrows it from each one of us to some specific gifts, some specific gifted persons who are given by Christ to the church. So we have a a unified royal priesthood, but it's a diverse unity. There are some who have public leadership functions, and here they're marked off as priests, if you will, with a particular calling. He says he gave some to be apostles and some to be prophets. These are once and for all foundational ministries, apostles and prophets. And they don't, by their very nature, they don't continue today. We're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And you know how we manifest that reality we manifest it by clinging to the apostolic and prophetic scriptures. The Holy Scriptures are the embassies of the apostles and the prophets. And then next, Paul mentions gifted persons who continue in the life of the church. Evangelists called to proclaim the gospel to the lost and thus expand the church. Pastors and teachers, which are here grouped together, probably one office, one function, in the church. Right? Shepherds need to teach the flock, and those who teach the flock need to shepherd the flock into the truth. So pastoring and teaching are inseparable. But what I want you to see, notice that all five of these offices, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, right? all five of them are public, authorized ministries of the word in one way or another. So the ascended Christ gave, and he is giving these offices to the church, and they all speak, they all teach, they all proclaim the word. So in a very real sense, nurture, which we're looking at today, right, nurture, it starts in public worship with the ministry of the word. That should be no surprise to anyone who listened to last week's sermon. Nurture starts there. It starts here. It's for newborn babes. And the immature being fed by what Peter calls the pure milk of the word. It's for the more mature, the trained, what the writer to the book of Hebrews to the Hebrew community calls the word of righteousness. So there's no growth apart from the word being publicly ministered and proclaimed and then assimilated, then internalized and lived out among the community. Verse 12 tells us that God gave these gifts, these ministries, to the church 
to enable the church's growth. So gifts are never an end in themselves, right? They, are, they, are, they belong to the body. They are public community property in a certain way. And these public ministries are, now please get this, because here the, turn, the text turns directly to you, to everyone sitting in here. These public ministries are oriented toward equipping the saints for the work of service, for the work of the ministry. That's why they were given. So the church is not a monopoly, or it's not a pyramid, you know, with all the ministry being done from the top down, flowing from the pastor or the elders. Hopefully no one has that idea. Right? The teaching ministry of the church is to equip the saints so you can engage in the work of the ministry. It's a revolutionary concept, really. Even to call a pastor, like myself, a minister, only captures a part of the truth. I'm a minister, a servant of the word, all fine and good. But But there's a profound sense in which pastors are ministry facilitators. And you are the minister's. Well, that's a slightly different model to have in your head, is it not? I'm the ministry facilitator. The elders are ministry facilitators. You are the ministers. You do the work of service, according to this text in Ephesians 4. Please grasp that. These gifted ones that Paul has listed out, those five ministries, including elders, pastors, teachers, evangelists, they're given to equip you. That means to furnish you, to make you qualified for ministry. So there's a mindset here that has to be adopted, right? It's very important that you think of yourself as fully furnished and as a gifted minister, right? as a priest anointed with the spirit of the ascended Christ, trained and formed by the preached word. That is how everyone sits in here should think of themselves. It's a great delight to me, and I see it frequently, um, you know, when the saints just naturally, organically, without any chaperoning, do what the word calls us to do. This is one of the secrets, I think, to the prosperity and the success of the early church. It was a legion of ministers just doing the gospel. So my ministry, to put it in personal terms, exists for the sake of your ministry. Right? The, the office of pastor-teacher exists for the royal priesthood to which you are called. When you were baptized, do you know what happened? You were invested or clothed or enrolled or ordained into the royal priesthood of the body of Christ. Your baptism was a kind of ordination into the royal priesthood of Christ and an anointing with the Spirit for the ministry God has called you to. And so the nurture of the word and the sacrament is to create an army, an army, a legion, a community of nurturers. So that's the ministry. The second thing here is maturity. Where is all this heading? What is the goal At the end of the equipping of the saints, the text says in verse 12, is that they edify 
or they build up the body of Christ. Edification is, of course, a building metaphor. It means strengthening the church. All that we do in our service is to build up. That's what we mean by nurture. Everyone in here, you may not think of yourself as having a nurturing personality. Well, you're still called to nurture. Everyone is called to edify, to strengthen, to uphold, to support, to sustain, to reinforce, to repair, to heal, to be one who nourishes, cherishes, nurtures the saints. You are called to that. Beginning in verse 13 in the text, you can see the goal of this gifted, equipped body. It's to grow up into maturity into Christ. What else would it be? Paul says, we edify the body until we come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Unity here is an attainment. It's something we strive for and seek. Right? That We live in a divided and alienated world. It is important that the church be a unified, nurturing community. And the sum... Right, The substance of that faith is Jesus Christ. Attaining to unity in the faith means we come, Paul says, to the knowledge. The actual underlying word here is the exact knowledge. It's a riff off the word knowledge. Of the Son of God. Think about that. We're not talking about a sort of minimal knowledge of Christ but a full and mature and precise knowledge of him. A knowledge that the church is to to move up into, to grow up into. A knowledge that is to to be fully appropriated. So much so that when the church attains to it, Paul says that she becomes, if you will, a mature or a perfect man. Is that why we are here this morning? Right? Often we, we get a little cloudy in our motivations, don't we? Like we need a little spiritual shot in the arm so we go to church. Or, there's, a, there's a lot of things people come to church for they can get in any, any, any number of other ways. Paul says that God is trying to create one mature man that, that reflects the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. The wholeness of Christ. It's an, really an astonishingly rich Conception. I mean, look at Jesus Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity, the eternal Son of God, right? The, the Word of the Father begotten before all worlds, made flesh for our salvation, now in His risen and ascended glory with His perfected and radiant humanity, endowed with the fullness of the Spirit. That one who possesses in his own person the fullness of what it means to be an apostle or a prophet or an evangelist or a pastor or a teacher. We are called as his body to grow up into the measure of the fullness of that stature. Now, if you have a low view of Christ, if he's sort of shrunken down, well, then perhaps this is not an inspiring vision. 
But when we see the measure of the stature of the glory of Christ and realize that we are called to grow up into that, then we see that we often fall short and have a lot of work to do. Have you ever seen a baby whose head is way too big for his body, his or her body? It seems odd, but the body, immature as it is, is still organically connected to the head, right? And, and where the right environment of healthy nurture is provided, the child will grow up into the right proportions. That's kind of how the church is, right? Jesus is the big head, full of glory and splendor and majesty, and we are, well, you know, we're, we're on the way. Like, we're, we're in progress. We're a works in progress, right? But we're called to grow up into that kind of human splendor. And fullness. Right? This is not a call to, to become divine or anything like that. It's a call to, 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 to manifest flourishing humanity. Christ, then, in his full stature, is the goal. And stated negatively, that means we're no longer to be children. Right? Paul goes on and says, we're not, in other words, we shouldn't be content to live out of proportion with the head. He says, we're not to be carried by every wind of doctrine. If we edify the body properly, we'll have stability in the one faith. We won't be seduced by what the text calls the craftiness and the cunning of deceitful schemers. Nurture stabilizes. Right? Nurture stabilizes. Communities need stabilization. Right? The the ordained ministry and the edifying of the whole array of ministers. The whole array of ministers, that's you. That inoculates us against the destructiveness of false teaching. Nurture not only stabilizes, nurture inoculates. Right? In contrast, then, to false teachers, Paul says in verse 15, we're to speak the truth in love. I think the totality of the health of a church can be gauged by the tone of speech to one another. We're to speak the truth. You know, this this word for truth is a beautiful word in the New Testament that that carries into its train the idea of wholesomeness, wholesome doctrine, healthy doctrine, nourishing doctrine. And we're to speak it in love. We're to speak it in love. People know if we don't love them. It's very hard to fake that. So then speaking the truth just becomes criticizing or hectoring. Truth without love becomes inhuman, really. And love without truth is mere sentimentality. We have both of those dimensions, by the way, in our popular culture, right? Truth without love, which is inhuman, right? And then love without truth, which is mere sentiment. But truth in love nurtures. It nurtures. And then finally we're told that Christ is the head. He does this. All this growth comes from Christ, but he does it through his members. You can see in verse 16 he says, Every, every again, supporting ligament builds the body up in love as each part does its work. Think of that. Every one of us, every joint or ligament, Supplies something. 
And every one of us needs to be working for the body to grow properly. So there's no, there are no appendixes, appendices. Right? There are no useless parts in the body of Christ. There's also no superstars in the body of Christ. There are only role players. Everybody plays every game all the time. Everybody is indispensable. So I'm going to talk in closing about how concretely to do this. Um, we'll talk, Lord willing, in a couple weeks about spiritual gifts, but I'm going, to, I'm going to talk about something here that applies to all Christians. right? Not the type of thing that someone can say, well, that's not my gift. This is the type of grace that all Christians should have and display. And I'm going to refer to some of the other texts we read this morning. All of those texts, by the way, are from... Level four of our vision statement. The vision statement has four levels. The fourth level being the most detailed. The top level being three words, which are glorify, nurture, and proclaim. These texts come from the fourth level. So three quick exhortations. The first one is uh, this means, this kind of nurturing means that we have a deep other orientation after the example of Christ, right? We saw that in the Romans 15 text. It tells us even Christ did not please himself. So we're, not, we're supposed to please and build up our neighbors for our good. But this means what Paul calls the weak and the strong in that context are to live together in harmony, he says, without passing judgment on one another in matters of opinion. This is very important because where it starts happening, churches unravel. Matters which are not the gospel or the public creeds of the church. So harmony, like a deep, unhesitating welcome without despising or judging, that requires a strong, it's a kind of demanding forbearance. And it's deeply needed on a range of issues where the gospel is not at stake. Where you might have a political difference or a social difference or some tactical difference with someone. My favorite example of this is, and Paul does it in this context of the later chapters of Romans, this Romans 15 text. You remember when Jesus said he had made all foods clean? Jesus says, I'm going to come. I'm going to lay down my life for the world. I'm going to provide atonement for the world. And that atonement is going to reconcile Jew and Gentile. So the food laws are finished. Because the food laws were really there to separate Israel out from the nations. All foods, Mark tells us in his gospel, he declared clean. So here's the logic. Jesus' atonement does away with the food laws. Therefore, to hold that certain foods are superior to other foods is a direct denial of Jesus' atonement. Guess what? Paul refuses that logic. Now, the church is full of people who don't refuse that logic. It's pretty easy to go from Jesus' atonement to all foods are clean, eat whatever you want. But Paul says, you know what? I don't mistake the gospel for an implication from the gospel. That is so important. He does not mistake the gospel. He doesn't make everything the gospel. Well, if the gospel is true, then this is true. And if this is true, then that is true. And the next thing you know, people are fighting about everything. 
You, people have no idea how intense and hot-blooded people in the early church were about these food things. Right? They didn't think they were indifferent. They thought the whole faith was at stake. And in a certain sense, they were right. And you know what Paul says? Let everybody be fully convinced in his own mind. One man eats vegetables, another man eats everything. I'm not going to fight about that. What's wrong with you, Paul? It's a direct implication of the atonement of Jesus that all foods are clean. And Paul says, yeah, I know, but it isn't the atonement. That's the level of forbearance and kindness on convictions that people say. He doesn't say, don't have any convictions. Go ahead, have the conviction. But be, this is where this, first, this Romans 15 text is from, but be the kind of person who holds the conviction with generosity and charity and who doesn't mistake the conviction for the gospel. Welcome one another, he says, as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is a crucial part of creating a nurturing environment. The second thing, then, is Hebrews 10, the Hebrews 10 text. Let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds, encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. It's a thing to encourage one another which takes sustained mental effort. Notice the text says, let us consider, think hard about how to spur others on to love and good deeds. You, you cannot nurture people. You don't spend time thinking about how to nurture. Like, it's a, it doesn't happen automatically. It's not even enough to say, Lord, make me a nurturing person. The text says, how about this? Think hard in a sustained manner about how to nurture other people. That's a different kind of commandment. Third, two texts, one from 1 Peter 4. There's another one in Romans 12. Speak about practicing hospitality, which is a requirement for elders. This is also indispensable if the church is to be nurtured. The whole ethos of the Old Testament is permeated by the idea of the community feast. That's why we have a monthly, one of the reasons we have a monthly fellowship meal. Jesus himself comes, and as I've mentioned before, one scholar says he eats his way through the whole gospel. So much so that Jesus gets accused of being a drunkard and a glutton. And the history of the world ends with the marriage supper of the Lamb. So hospitality is a sign that we believe the gospel. Because God and Jesus has become our host. He's invited us to his table. He's even made us into his house. But notice this. It's also a command. And the command assumes repeatedly working at it. Notice this word, practice, hospitality. It assumes that some of us are no good at it. I think a robust culture of hospitality can change the whole world. It's pretty much what the early church had, right? They didn't have any of the things we had. They had very few of the programs or assets that the modern church has. They had the word and sacrament, and then they had the organic life of the church, which was often marked by hospitality. A single meal with another person is more productive than a month of Sundays for bonding people together in love. 
So this is a taste, right, of what we're all equipped by the word to do. Welcoming one another in charity, encouraging one another to love and good deeds, eating and drinking together. In short, nurture means we're not seeking a cold peace or a series of churchly activities or an enjoyable religious slash social club. Rather, we seek to be a sign, what the New Testament calls the church, a sacrament, if you will, of the fullness of Christ's own measure, his own stature, his own maturity. In the gospel lesson today, Jesus says this. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Right? That is the simplest and most radical form of the call to nurture the saints. It's right at the heart of what Jesus' atoning death calls us to. And it's not easy. We resist it, often fiercely. Is it hard? Yeah, it's very hard. Believe it or not, not all of us are intrinsically lovable. (laughs) The as I have loved you part tells us that this is going to require taking up the cross. Following Jesus, dying so life might work in other people. And doing this in itself is a very powerful form of proclaiming the gospel, which, Lord willing, we'll look at next week. Remember, glorify last week, nurture this week, proclaim next week. Jesus says, if you love one another, everyone will know you're my disciples if you do this. Or we might say it in a virtually identical form. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you nurture one another. Think about that. If by great, the grace we've been given, we play our role, then we will reach this goal. One fully mature body, gloriously suited to its glorious head. Let us pray that God grants us to take our place, to deploy as those equipped by the word, and to nurture one another in truth and love. Amen.